The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoke Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading will be from Epictetus's Enchiridion, the handbook, chapter 5. But first, I would like to give a little preface to address a topic that I've talked about on other occasions, which is, why am I interested in Stoicism? And I'm not going to do an entire breakdown of all of the reasons, but I would like to clarify one of the reasons. So I was talking to someone, uh, another rabbi who was involved in education, and we were talking about the role of, I guess we'll call it the canon of the great books of the Western world, and different philosophies about how the ideas from those books relate to Judaism. So one model, for example, is Torah Umada, uh, which is the motto of YU. I haven't read about the nuances of the Torah Umada approach lately, so I'm not going to comment on that. But suffice it to say, that approach would regard Torah, (laughs) meaning Judaism and Jewish literature, as distinct from Mada, which is, for lack of a better explanation, secular literature, but the approach advocates for learning them side by side or somehow integrating them, Torah umada. But there's another approach that this uh, this rabbi was telling me about, which would say that even to make such a distinction is, is not exactly accurate. In other words, the other approach is to say that it's all knowledge. And of course, Torah is a specific subject and has a different authority than what we learn in secular uh, in, in in the secular studies. But to treat them as two separate things, as opposed to as opposed to uh, a single unified chachma seeking approach, would be a distortion. Okay, so those are two just two sketches of two different models. So this got me thinking about Stoicism, and I realized that a lot of what I do here on this podcast and a lot of what my interest is in Stoicism really is not treating it as though there are, are uh, I guess, unique values and benefits to be gained from Stoicism, as if Stoicism has some sort of, of special value that Torah can't offer. That's not what my approach is. In many cases, I really look to Stoicism and the writings of the Stoics as tools to supplement my my or to facilitate my implementation of Torah ideas. And that is what I would like to do today. So Epictetus's teaching, oh, and I guess I should mention that I, I, I don't know who came up with this quotation or, or this notion, this idea that philosophy is a handmaiden to religion. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I fully agree with that, but that's definitely what I mean today, that today we're going to examine a teaching of, of really of Epictetus, and show how it can be in service of a principle of Torah. And then I would like to talk about this, this new, and that's not new, new to me, practical method of implementing that Stoic technique. Okay, that's the sketch of what today's episode is going to be, or what I intend it to be. So let's start off with Epictetus. Epictetus in the Enchiridion, the handbook, uh, Right, and I'm not going to read the entire paragraph. I'm going to uh, edit out the middle part just to focus on the one idea. It is not circumstances themselves that trouble people, but their judgments about those circumstances. Therefore, whenever we are hindered or troubled or distressed, let us never blame others but ourselves, that is, our own judgments. 
So I often say that the essence of Stoicism, according to my mind, is Enchiridion, is, is, is expressed in Epictetus' Enchiridion chapter 1, which is that there are things in our control and things that are out of our control, and that our focus should be on the things in our control. I'd say that this chapter, or this statement from, from Epictetus, really is a second pillar of Stoicism, namely that our all of the negative emotions that we feel really come from our own judgments, not from the circumstances themselves. And that you could have different people who experience the same thing externally, but what governs their reaction is entirely within their own head and their own feelings. So depending on the example and depending on the day, really, then it can be very easy to read this and, uh, and either say, oh yeah, that makes sense, or to get discouraged or to say, this is impossible, okay? There's certainly, we've all been in circumstances where we feel like it is circumstances that are dictating our feelings and not our judgment. And the notion of blaming ourselves is, seems to be irrational or cruel or insensitive or something like that. So the question always is, how do we implement, we can recognize maybe that this is true on a theoretical level, but how do we implement it practically? Okay, so that's one question I hope to answer with this new technique that I found. Okay, set that aside for a second. The particular case that I would like to examine, as the title indicates, is the principle of the heavy Don es kol adam lakaf zuchus. Okay, this is a principle that is stated in, in uh, Pirkei Avos. Chapter 1, Mishnah 6, according to some counts, Yehoshua ben Parachia ben Nittai Arbeli Kiblu Mehem. Okay, so this is listing in the generations of the Masorah and the oral tradition that Yehoshua ben Parachia and Nittai Arbeli were the two leaders in that generation. Yehoshua ben Parachia Omer, Aselacha Rav, Ukneelacha Chaver, Vehevei Dan Eskol Adam Lakavzachus. Yehoshua ben Parachia says, Make yourself or make for yourself a, a Rav, uh, a rabbi, for lack of a better translation here. Acquire for yourself a friend, and you should judge every person favorably. Okay, a simple translation. So the question is, what does it mean to judge every person favorably? So the the Rambam, in my opinion, gives the most uh, the I guess most comprehensive uh, treatment of of uh, of the parameters of that piece of advice, or not piece of advice, that directive. So I'm just going to read a part of it and summarize the rest. He says, "Inyano the idea." Is adam If there is a person who is not known to you, who you don't know, lo and you don't know whether he is righteous or wicked. and you see him saying something or doing something that if you explain it in one way, then it is good. and if you explain it in another way, ra, then it's bad. Parshehu Katov, then you should explain it for the good, Val Bo Ra, and you should not think uh, ill of him. Okay, so that's that's what the Mishnah is telling us to do. Now, the Ramam does go on and state more parameters. For example, he says, if you know that this person is a tzaddik, if this person has a reputation for being righteous, and you see him do an action that is not ambiguous, but something that really, really looks bad, okay, not that it's definitively bad, but that, that looks bad then you should go out of your, you're obligated to go out of your way to interpret it favorably. And, and likewise, if you see uh, someone who is widely known to be a Russia, who's known to be evil, and you see him do something which really, really seems good, you should go out of your way to explain it uh, as, uh, uh, as evil, right? So if you see uh, Hitler petting a, a puppy, right, uh, then you should find some contrived way of explaining it that it stems from evil intent or has some has some sort of evil design. Okay, uh, 
here, so so only in other words, so the Mishnah is only talking about when you have an ordinary person or a person whose reputation you don't know, how should you judge them? Okay. Now, um, I am not going here to explain why this is the case. Uh, you know what, what the idea is behind the Mishnah. Uh, I've given uh, other shirim on that. Uh, I think I recorded it in 2020 or 2021. I'll link it in the show notes if I find it after I make this recording. So we're not going to talk about why we do this. This is a very, very practical episode. We're going to talk about how we do this, okay? Uh, and I think those of us who have learned this before or encountered this idea elsewhere, then the way we do it is we just, you know, someone does something, cuts us off in traffic, for example, and uh, and we kind of just like, I don't know, loosely, spontaneously um, fumble in our mind to try to come up with an explanation for for some justification for what they're doing, okay? I mean, most of the time we don't do that, and that's that's why we need this Mishnah, but when we do try to do that, we just we just try. Like, if you ask someone, how would how should you be Don Lukavskus? They would say, oh, just... Try to explain it for the good. Try to look at them in a favorable light, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not really a, uh, I guess, a systematic method, okay? So what I found, what I discovered yesterday is a uh, a method. Now, ordinarily, I don't just jump into things uh, on the podcast. Oh, sorry, I, I don't just share things that I... I've barely read about, okay? <laughs> Usually I will read and educate myself about this more and then share it, but I feel like this is going to be a game changer and I wanted to kind of share it at its inception. So uh, I, as many of my uh, friends and students know, I am a regular listener to the Tim Ferriss show, okay? For those who don't know, Tim Ferriss is an entrepreneur, but he has this podcast uh, that in which he interviews successful people in their fields. And this could be, you know, in uh, business, politics, uh, literature, whatever. I mean, the first episode I ever heard, I think, from Tim Ferriss was uh, his interview of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Allah Shalom. Uh, so he really interviews everyone, and he's a very good interviewer, and he really gets down to the what what these people have learned in their over the course of their lives and careers that have have helped them to achieve success. So I'm listening. I'm currently listening to an older episode, episode 387, uh, interview with Tris, Tristan Harris, and the subtitle is "Fighting Skynet and Firewalling Attention." Okay, so not going to go into who that is, but I'm just going to excerpt. I'm going to read from the transcript of this uh, of the interview here. Okay, and I'm going it, to. It's somewhat of a long excerpt, but uh, I think it's best if I just present this to you because this is how I heard the uh, this idea. So Tristan says. Have you ever done, quote, the work of Byron Katie? Okay, so the work is in italics. It's the name of uh, of a, a book, really, or a method. So have you ever done the work of Byron Katie? Tim Ferriss says, I have. I find a number of her one sheets, sort of these one-page worksheet prompts, to be very helpful. It takes a little getting used to. It can seem very strange and nonsensical at first, but I think if you're willing to force yourself to do the thought exercise of contorting the beliefs, these statements that you take as true, it's super valuable. Can you describe it, if, if you've done it, how you've done it? Okay, so here comes the method, okay? Now, I'm going to preface this also by saying that apparently the method is called the four questions. The way that Tristan Harris summarizes it, it's unclear exactly whether there are four or five questions. So I don't really think it matters. What matters is the actual steps. So I'm now going to read Tristan Harris's presentation of this method called The Work from Byron Katie. So Tristan says, 
It sounds super abstract for those people who haven't seen it, but she's basically just come up with a set of four questions you can ask of any moment in your life that causes stress. Because usually what's happening is you are creating that stress for your own mind and you just can't see it yet. I kind of think about it to link it to the magic metaphor. Um, he was talking about magic tricks earlier in the, uh, uh, in the podcast that our brains are living inside of this 24 seven magic trick, which is whatever thought pops into our mind, we believe it. We don't, we don't not believe it. We automatically step into it and we see the world through that thought, through the assumptions of that thought. Essentially what her four questions do is they let you see the exact opposite of that belief, which then makes you not take your beliefs and your thoughts so seriously. And it's a great parody with meditation, but essentially it's something like, I don't know, for example, you're driving and there you are. And there is some guy and then some guy in a red Corvette cuts you off and you're like, I don't know, something like that guy is an a-hole or something like that. You are convinced of it. Every bone in your body, every bit of your nervous system, just, you know, for sure, this guy is impatient. He's inconsiderate. All these thoughts just rush into your mind and you have utter certainty about your experience and who this other person is, let alone the fact that you don't know if this person is rushing to go get their wife who's at the hospital because something is wrong. I mean, you don't know. The four questions are, okay, this guy is inconsiderate. The first question is, is that true that this guy is inconsiderate then you have to like pause and sit there there you are in the car looking at this person saying this guy is inconsiderate it's not true okay second question is usually to reinforce and loosen up maybe the beliefs a bit which is can you be absolutely sure it's true that this guy is inconsiderate and you realize no i can't in fact i just thought that the moment he stepped and ran in front of me I just thought that the moment he stepped in ran in front of me. So then you get to the third question, which is, okay, what happens? How do I react? What images come to mind? How do I feel? How do I relate to the world? How do I relate to him when I believe the thought that that guy is inconsiderate? What happens? And the answer would be something like, I see him as naive. I see him as thoughtless. I see him as, I don't care about him. I want him to be removed off the face of the earth. I want that car out of my way. I get angry in my body. I feel all these feelings. You're basically you're trying to basically list the ecology of just what that one belief in that one moment that that guy is inconsiderate does to your whole nervous system. It's like a full body scan, kind of a full belief scan of what that does. And you sort of see, oh my God, just by believing that one thought, it's totally transformed my entire experience in that moment with reality. I'm now seeing reality in a totally different way and usually in a more distorted, disconnected, not centered, not calm, not connected way. And the fourth question once you realize the kind of absurdity of that ecology of beliefs is who would I be in that moment without the thought that this guy is inconsiderate? And so there he is. He crosses. He cuts over right in front of me. But without the thought, that guy's inconsiderate. Maybe it's something like I have curiosity about what happened. Why did he do that? Whatever. You get that ecology. Then the last step is to list the opposites of that belief. Instead of that guy is inconsiderate, one opposite is that guy is very considerate or he is considerate. And then you try to find evidence. Is there any way in which that could be true? And in that moment, prior to doing this process, you were convinced that this guy was absolutely inconsiderate. But after you've done these four questions, you think, is there any evidence for him being considerate? Well, if he's on the way to the hospital to meet his wife who just got, who was in labor or something from being pregnant, uh, you realize he could be the most considerate person in that way. Or another opposite to he's inconsiderate could be, I am inconsiderate. 
And the evidence there would be that I'm inconsiderate of the fact that I don't know the ecology of this other person's life and I rapidly jumped to conclusions. What this process does, and I feel like they made me go through it for so long, but uh, it shows you something fundamental about the ways that our minds trap us in an almost like permanent fixed set of glasses that temporarily occupy the way that we would see the world and make meaning. When we see that, you stop taking your thoughts and your beliefs so quite so seriously. And you realize that even though those moments when you're stressed and you're convinced that it's because the world really is doing that thing that pisses you off, it lets you see maybe I'm actually doing this for myself. And that also gains and increases responsibility because that means that now that we're responsible for own experience, as opposed to the world is constantly terrorizing us with situations. Okay, that's as much of the excerpt that I'm going to read. They go on to then describe, uh, to talk more about the method. And Tim Ferriss shares that he, when he first started doing this, he had incredible resistance to this. And he said that the only way uh, he could uh, bring himself to do this is to imagine that someone is holding a gun to his head and saying, answer these questions or, you know, or I'll shoot you. And he was forced to come up with answers. So let me just review the steps again. Okay. And again, I'm not clear whether there are four or five steps. So the first question is, so, you, so something happens to you, someone does something to you. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be a person doing this to you, but uh, I think it, the, the method is framed in terms of people. So someone does something to you and you form a judgment about this person. So first question is, is that true? Okay. Second question is, can you be absolutely sure that that's true? Third question is, what's going on in my body, right? Or what am I thinking and feeling? Not just body. What am I thinking and feeling? What does that belief do to me, okay? Um, and, uh, and you really go full into that. You let yourself think and feel all those feelings. The fourth question is, who would I be in that moment without the thought that this guy, uh, that, that this person is, uh, uh, without that judgment, right? Who would I be in this moment without that judgment? And then the last step is, to ask yourself about the opposite is, is what would it, what would happen if I, if, if I believed the opposite? Okay. Now I'll give you one example. And this is an example I always give when I'm teaching uh, about this concept of being Don Lakovsky, who is of judging someone favorably. So this happened in, when I was in yeshiva. Okay. So in, I was in the dorm and we had dorm counselors and, uh, you know, there's been dorm count, different dorm counselors, uh, every year of yeshiva's existence. And, um, and, uh, I was recently tapped as the next dorm counselor. So I was talking to one of my friends and I mentioned that I'm going to be the next dorm counselor. And this other guy from the yeshiva who I wasn't really friends with said you, and then he laughed. Okay. And I was hurt by this. Okay. I thought to myself, this guy is mocking me. Like, and not only is he like, okay, be one thing if this guy had a judgment in his mind and uh, and kept this to himself but he's openly laughing and like making fun of me essentially and why would he do that and he's 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 trying to make me feel bad you know so i'm thinking these thoughts okay so if i were to apply this method obviously i didn't know the method then but if i were to apply this method i would stop and ask myself um is this guy really a jerk right let's say let's just lump all those categories in, in a jerk this guy is being a jerk okay so is this guy being a jerk Okay. So if I think about it, my first response is to say, yeah, he is. I mean, regardless of what he's actually believing, he is la laughing derisively at me. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so I would stop and, 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 and I stopped and thought, and, and yeah, he, that, that is what he's doing. Okay. And, and, and it's, it's hurtful to me. Right. And he knows that. 
Okay, <laughs> then if I ask myself, can I be absolutely sure? No, I can't be absolutely sure, right? It's possible that he means something else. It's possible that his laughter is not at me. It's possible that the reason he's laughing is because of something else that came to his mind. I can't see into his head, so I can't be absolutely sure that this thing is, uh, that, that my uh, judgment that he's a jerk is really, is really true. Okay, so the third step is to ask myself, uh, what am I feeling and what, and what am I thinking? So, uh, so again, going into that, I, I didn't do that back then because uh, I know the method and I was not self-aware, but what I did do was my, uh, um, you know, my, my mom and my dad always gave me two contrary pieces of advice, and I found that sometimes it's useful to use one and, the, and sometimes it's useful to use the other, that my mom's advice would always be, don't go to bed angry because you never know if this is the last time you'll speak to this person. And uh, my dad's advice is, sleep on it, <laughs> give it 24 hours. And if you feel the same way the next day, then, then, then talk about it. So this time I decided to use my dad's advice is I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to stew in this and I'm going to, you know, go about the rest of my day. And then tomorrow, if I still feel the same way, I'll, I'll talk to this guy. Uh, and so that's what happened. And I woke up the next day, I was still feeling upset. So I took this guy aside in fulfillment of the mitzvah of low, of, um, low sisna uh, that's the low say the prohibition of do not hate your fellow in your heart. Uh, you should surely rebuke your fellow and do not bear sin for, for him. And halakhically, what that means is if you are harboring hatred towards a person for something that they did to you, then uh, and you you don't want to talk to them, that's exactly when halakha steps in and says, no, you must talk to him and say, why did you do this to me? Or, or, or you know, uh, and initiate the dialogue. So I did that, okay? So I went to the guy and I asked him. And as soon as I said, you know, what, uh, as soon as I asked him, uh, you know, why did you laugh at me when, when you heard that I was going to be the dorm counselor? He immediately, you know, was apologetic and said, Oh, and, and this is genuine. He said, Oh, I was not laughing at you. I was laughing at the fact that finally we have someone who's going to do a good job being dorm counselor. Uh, and, uh, and I guess he had had experiences in the dorm where, where he had not had good experiences with dorm counselor. And he was laughing like in, gleeful satisfaction that finally we're going to get like a, a, a dorm counselor who can do the job well and, and, and run things smoothly. So it was really, so that was, so now going back to the, to the work, to, to, uh, to Byron Katie's uh, questions here, right. Is, um, that, oh, I skipped a step, right. Who would I be in that moment without the thought that this guy's a jerk? Okay. So if I had thought that, who would I be? That's a good question. I have to think about that on my own. I'm actually getting a little bit close to the, uh, I need time wanting to leave for yeshiva. So I'm just going to skip that step and just talk about the opposites. Cause in this case, it was the opposite, right? Is he wasn't laughing at me derisively. He was laughing for himself joyously about me in a good way. Right? So it really was the opposite. And, uh, and I, my own defensive reaction, you know, defensive egotistical reaction was totally off base, totally off base. Okay. Um, and so it was a really good, uh, uh lesson for me about being Don Lakofsky was about judging people favorably. And I think that again, in the moment, it's very hard to say maybe the opposite of what I'm thinking is true. Uh, but what this practice does is it forces you to go through that mental channel and to experience the feelings. And not only that, but that fourth question of who would I be in that moment without the thought that this guy's inconsiderate, it also brings identity into the picture. And I think that the, the wording of that question, who would I be without this thought, 
really shows you that it's not just your reactions that are at stake here. It is your very identity. Uh, and I think the implications of that are going to be uh, huge. I, I need to think about it some more. I do plan on looking more into Byron Katie's work um, because, again, this is the first time I've heard of it. And uh, I know nothing else about her. I'd never heard her name before. And I, But I think that this is a great example of, of number one, Epictetus is teaching that it is not circumstances that's in themselves that trouble you, but your judgments about the circumstances. And, uh, but it really shows it, it, it breaks by breaking it down into a technique. It really makes this actionable and really shows you how to implement it. And, uh, this is also a good example of why I learned stoicism and why I learned uh, these, uh, many other things in terms of mindfulness, in terms of other stuff, because, here, the, the, the Torah's teaching of being Don Lekavzachus, of judging someone favorably, is Iker. That's the main thing. But, but the question is, how do you do it? So you get the Rambam who's explaining to you on one level of explanation how to do it, and Epictetus who's explaining to you also on one level how to do it. But I sometimes, because I'm, <laughs> I often need more explanation. I need it to be more practical. And that's what these thinkers uh, uh, tend to give me. I mean, uh, again, in this case, Epictetus is just uh, giving the principle. But you know, Seneca will often go into the the the, the nitty gritty practical implementations. So will Marcus Aurelius. Uh, sometimes Epictetus does this in the discourses, and then all these other people who I like to read. Uh, you know, books I've talked about before by Tara Brach and and Bruce Tift and all these other people. Uh, they really uh, exp expand on these things, and so I feel like this really is using philosophy, mindfulness, stoicism as a handmaiden to, to Torah. And, uh, and I'm just very excited to see where this theory goes. I can definitely see how uh, Tim Ferriss is right, that this is going to evoke tremendous resistance. And really, when I, I listened to one YouTube video uh, after this, where I heard Byron Katie talking about it, and she talks about this as a type of meditation, not just a, a, a procedure that you do on paper. So curious to see where this leads, but that is all I have to say for today. And uh, if you have any stories where you have implemented things like this or you try implementing this, please let me know because I think the more we find successful examples, then the the more convinced we'll be that this is a worthwhile method. That is it for today's episode. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash rabbishnayweiss. Alternatively, if you'd like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Tour Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle and PayPal are matchschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you'd like to sponsor a day's or a week's worth of content, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewes.gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.